Gone. We're set up. Excellent. I think you say that every time. It's sort of my go-to confirmation word. Confirmation. Like an acknowledgement. Confirmation bias. Where do you see confirmation bias most? Uh, in everyone that disagrees with me. In everyone that isn't that natural for everyone to disagree at a certain point. And that's their confirmation you, bias. So you're, just, so you're just saying that you're right and they're wrong. Hmm. It's everyone's confirmation bias against my own. <laughs> I, I find there's a, probably a lot of confirmation bias with um, my, I would say, my friends, vegans. Um, I guess I don't feel like they've looked at the evidence that might go against the health benefits of veganism. I don't know if there is or is not, but I just feel like when one becomes a vegan like that, it's very easy to ignore any evidence that might go against what they think yeah i it's not really my field so what is what is the proper definition of confirmation bias i've got an idea but it's not a very rigorous well okay well let me give my definition and then i'm going to go on the net and find the proper definition. because it's when you want to believe something it's my colloquial understanding is it's when you want to believe something and yeah. so you ignore evidence to the contrary basically yeah so you do ig- I think there is an element of ignoring evidence to the contrary, but also you seek evidence that supports your view. Yeah, you're feeling that like if there's a study with grey areas, you'll fill in the blanks Yeah, in well, your own. You'll join the dots to your own yeah. imagination rather than leaving them blank or, or considering all the possibilities of how they yeah. the so, grey areas should be filled in. Yeah, so you're not really going to have that balanced sort of perspective. And it's fucking everywhere, man. Like, well, from that point of view, is it even possible? Because surely there's you could say like a plurality of truths and you're just going to sort of pick your own. Even if you're trying to be objective, you can only be objective in your own context. So you can't consider every possibility because there's infinite in a way until you know what you're actually dealing with. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I suppose. I think it's like, it's just kind of an unconscious thing though that like people... Because they want to be right and they want everything to fit into a neat little box. But a lot of the time, shit just doesn't work out that way. Is it almost a necessary evil, though, where you need to draw a conclusion to get anywhere in the first place? So even if you're going in the wrong direction, you'd never head in any direction if you were totally aware of it and then you never filled in the blanks. You'd never have a complete even idea of a picture. So you'd never be able to work towards something or you'd never be able to... Yeah, head in a direction without sort of at least filling in the blanks and then working it out truly when you get there. Yeah, well, it's kind of like uh, the philosophical sort of philosophy of um, when I think it was David Hume. He was basically saying that you know if you don't have any beliefs, you can't function in the world. You know, because he's trying to say you know people maybe get biased and they you know jump to conclusions or whatever. But he's saying well, you you got to have some sort of basic beliefs, otherwise you're just going to do nothing. You know, if I I believe that. Uh, turning on this podcast will like the you know all the technology here will make a record if I don't believe that then I'm not going to fucking do it if I don't drink water you know I'm not going to feel hydrated 
is that making sense? Well, there's a certain like confidence level there with these things where if it worked all the other times and all the gear was in ro- working order and calibrated and plugged in and whatever, if it worked before, there's a very good chance under very similar conditions it's going to work again. And like with water, there's pretty strong evidence that you'll die without it. No. There's very little doubt over that. So it's a very easy... Like, ultimately, I guess it's belief because anything can happen for the first time. Yeah. But it's a pretty well-founded belief to the point where it maybe is no longer useful to describe it as a belief that it becomes as factual as anything can ever be. Yeah. 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 Like that, you know, the argument um, about like a brain in a jar? No, uh, There's a more eloquent way of putting it, surely. But I think, therefore, I am... And everything else this beyond was, that. I was literally talking about this yesterday. This and that that quote is taken totally out of context. I reckon it's more like I think, therefore, I exist. Yeah, exactly. And then everything else beyond that, all these stimuli could be a brain in a jar being fed the correct yeah sort of um, electrical signals yeah and maybe chemical signals too. I don't know how the brain fully works, which puts me in good company. Um, <laughs> yeah, if you if you fed it the right information, a brain in a jar at least in, in, in theory, could function or could, could imagine, could believe that it's – could be fed all the sensory information, which is the same as the real experience, then what's the difference? Yeah. So well, beyond yeah, that, yeah. Are, are we here right now? Sort of a matrix-type question. Yeah. But it doesn't – it's maybe not useful in most life to actually even deal with that other than at the pub and talking about philosophy. Yeah. Because it doesn't really lead to much fruitful endeavour to, to deliberate on that and say, are we just in a – you know, in some sort of simulation or whatever. Yeah. It probably doesn't have real bearing on most of life. And even if this is the case, well, then you're still sort of stuck in whatever you're stuck in right now. So you might as well work with what you have right now and you really can, to a very high degree of certainty at least, seem to pin down touch, feel and sense and that is your reality. Just experience life at least. Mm. It's like, you you know, we're here, so I kind of figure, well... I'm just going to, you know, make the the most of my situation. I don't think there's anything spiritual going on and I don't think that I'm special in any way. I just, you know, I'm just here. I'm just going to make the most of my life. I'm going to try to live a good life, try to do the right thing most of the time. Um, and that's the thing. Like if you're getting all that sensual stimuli anyway, you are in that situation. It's kind of the same thing. You're, you're having an experience. Yeah, well, it's academic to draw a distinction between being a brain in a jar or being a brain – in a body, yeah. If there's no way to tell the difference in any sort of rigorous, actual, sort of repeatable, factual way, then what is the difference? If you can't tell the difference between two different things, then who's to say there is actually a difference? Yeah. Or it's academic if there is a difference because even if there was, you would never know it. Yeah. So well, that's just it, you know. Just do, do, just keep going. I guess. I don't know. I guess it's just like, yeah. I don't know. It's like um. Like, taking acid, like, I just don't think I could ever do that because you're totally changing your, well, I mean, you hear people talk about it and they say, like, it totally changes the way you fucking view life. And some people say in a good way, some people say in a bad way. I just wouldn't want to take that fucking risk. Like, I don't know if it's 50-50 or whatever, but. You can waste a lot of time doing drugs. Yeah. You can waste a lot of time doing a lot of things, but drugs particularly. Every drug? Not amphetamines. You'll get a lot done. <laughs> yeah, as long as you don't do it regularly because then you're going to run out of steam. 
Well, yeah, you run out of teeth too. But um, <laughs> but as far as I've got a lot of time for amphetamines, not that I take them. Yeah. But you know, all the, all those pilots in Iraq flying their missions, and you know, the pilots are expensive. There's only so many of them, so they want them flying the jets as often as possible. Yeah. So they take a lot of amphetamines. They've got proper like government mandated stimulus packages. Really. Um, or stimulant packages. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Um, oh, that this could be an old wives' tale from Air Force guys that I, I know, but I've heard this on from at least two people, uh, and I, I would believe it. And that's I've heard that's also why hospitals get blown up with somewhat regularity. Another thing, you know, friendly fire, and there's the fog of war, but also it's yeah. because you've got pilots up there that are just jittery, yeah. flying, you know, 20 hours a day, yeah, uh, high-stress combat missions, and you get the signal to blow something up where it looks like the enemy, so then you go and blow it up. Yeah. I've heard this from people. Um in the Air Force. Yeah. So, and I, I'd believe it. And I imagine, because um, there's a long documented history of soldiers and other military personnel being given, you know, amphetamines of various sorts. Right. Because if you can just keep on fighting and keep on rolling through and blitzkrieging and whatever. Yeah. Without sleep, that's a real benefit. But are you eventually going to wear out? Yeah. Well, wouldn't it make more sense to kind of, I don't know, I guess if Well, but, but it's, it's, it's like a fight in so many things in life. Um you know, there's, there's the rule of diminishing returns. So if you want to run at 10 kilometers per hour, that's not so hard. If you want to run at 20, that's more difficult. If you want to run at like 30, if you want to run at 40 kilometers, which I think is about the peak speed that Usain Bolt reaches. Yeah. Um, it's incredibly hard. It takes a lot more energy. It takes like four or five times the strength and energy and power to run at 40 Ks than at 20, even yeah. though it's twice the speed. Yeah. But if you're running from a cheetah, that extra, even if it's, you know, 30 versus 35, that extra five kilometers, the difference between being chased down or your friend being chased down. So even though there's a huge extra cost for very increment, very small incremental gain, that incremental gain has a much larger value. So yeah. the first five Ks is not worth much because the cheat is going to get you. That last five Ks that separates you and your competitor, or when you're in a fight, you know, that last ounce which of strength or of dogged determinants which um, separates you and your competitor it's a very small incremental increase but it is the balance of outcome and so therefore it has a very very high um it has a very high cost associated maybe because it takes a lot more energy to get a little bit extra but it's also got a very high payoff because that's the difference between winning and losing yeah so there's sort of a a very strong non-linearity with these sort of things yeah which related to something which I can't remember anymore. Yeah, well, it happens. We talk about one thing and then it moves on to another thing. I th- what was that when we were originally talking about the brains or some shit? But I didn't even know how we got. No, we're talking about taking drugs and you know, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so if your soldiers can fight an extra four hours, um, and the enemy's given up, or you know, the enemy's starting to like their guys don't have the drugs, so they're only doing eight-hour shifts, and your guys are doing sixteen-hour shifts. Yeah, you've then got. Uh, Twice the manpower? Three times. I don't know. You've got a lot more, like for the same amount of guys, you've got a lot more, you know, sort of battle hours of mm. digging trenches or firing artillery shells yeah. or flying missions or servicing jets or whatever they're doing. Yeah. You, for a given number of guys, you've got a lot more man hours going towards the operation. Yeah. And, you know, it could just be that that one airstrike was the difference between advancing or being driven back or that one artillery strike or you know, this one skirmish here, that can be the turning point. And so there might be a lot more effort and you might crash and burn later on. But if you don't do it now, then you'll just be overrun perhaps. 
So it's worth giving it all or nothing in that in that moment because yeah. there's such a high cost. You can't afford to fail, perhaps. Well, that's the thing, though. You got you, you'd fucking hope that this battle or you know this particular you know you're saying this particular skirmish, whatever. You'd hope that that would work because if it doesn't, then it kind of turns into a war of attrition, in particular respect to exhaustion. Because if if the other if the other guys who weren't taking drugs and were you know doing split shifts or whatever, they happen to still be able to hold you off, then you're fucked. Yeah, I guess I'm just saying though. In general, sometimes an extra ten percent or an extra one percent, it's a lot of extra work to get that extra one percent. Yeah. But that's what makes the difference. Yeah. yeah. And so there's diminishing returns. So it takes, you know, twice the energy to get an extra 50% of the output. But that 50% of the output or that extra output is what made the difference. And therefore, you could then attribute then a reward or a value to that extra 50% as being even higher than the initial 100%. Yeah. Because it's what made the difference. That's what you need to, that's what you need to get. Yeah. Or that's what you need to achieve to, to, to win or to break over an energy barrier or whatever you got to do. Yeah. So didn't the Nazis take like some sort of drug or is that a myth? Uh, I don't know if it's a myth or not, but Me- I've heard Me- that they, they Me- use a lot Me- of Me- methamphetamines. Me- yeah. Like, I thought, didn't they say like Mephid- Mephid- methadrine or methadone or something like that? Not methadone. That'd be like a depressant. That's <laughs> like a heroin substitute. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that wouldn't be ideal to have in a... A wartime situation. Well, there'd be plenty in the medical packs, I think, for when you get shot. Well, through yeah. the face, but through the. Well, actually, my mate um at work, she's Croatian, and she said, in the you know the Bosnian, uh, Serbian war, like in the nineties, the Yugoslavia, exactly the Yugoslavia breakdown and mm. everything going to hell. Um, she says that a lot of the guys, the Croatians at least, smoked weed in the middle of, like, the war and in the middle of battles. I could think of nothing. Like, I don't know. How, have you done much weed? No. Done none? Uh, I did one joint in Amsterdam. Right, okay. Or oh, Utrecht, actually. Okay, so could you imagine trying to be in a battle, on you know, under the influence of that? I was already pretty pissed, so I didn't really do much Oh, weed. right, okay. Well, I can tell you right now, if I wanted to survive, the last thing I want to do is take weed. But her argument is that it'd, like, help with the stress. I just... I, you know, I can't fucking focus half the time when I'm fucking smoking weed. I, can you imagine any benefit to actually getting high on marijuana in a fucking battle? Or like, you know, oh, we're going to go fucking fight people and we might die. Let's smoke some fucking weed. Well, you might as well enjoy it, I guess. Enjoy the battle. If, if, you, if you could get blown up in the next five minutes, then, for, for you know, it doesn't matter. Like the shell comes in from nowhere or the sniper, no one even sees him. You're the first to get shot in the head. So there's not even a chance to react. It's totally out of your hands. Yeah. Um, then there's not a lot of downside to getting drunk or smoking or damaging your health in the long term. Yeah. Because you might not be here in the short term. But it's not about damaging. I'm, what I'm talking about is being able to focus. Yeah, but then also surely you enjoy it. So you'd you'd then if you think you could be dead in the next 24 hours very easily. Yeah. Then there's very little downside to enjoying the next one hour or two hours. Yeah, that makes sense. I'd probably, I'd probably have a few drinks of alcohol going into a war situation because I think that would make you a little bit more, I guess it's brave. There's also a difference between professional armies and professional soldiers and people that are thrown into it or militia or conscripts of the past. Yeah. 
there's a very different attitude towards the training and probably then as a result, the way they fight wars between professional armies and professional soldiers No, and yeah, like militia or regular people that are just sort of thrown into a situation. No, I guess, I guess I wonder if I, I don't, I don't really, I mean, I know how the, you know, the Yugoslavian war kind of started, but I'd say there would probably be a lot of guys who were just dragged into it. Like, well, you know, shit, you know, especially like Bosnians and stuff like that. It's like, well, fuck, you know, I guess I have to, would you so let's just say hypothetically that uh i don't know um who do you think would invade this country i don't know why the fuck they would but the chinese okay let's just say that the chinese invaded us it'd be pretty fucking hard to do so. let's start with kingsford they get a pretty good you know foothold in chatswood uh they'd they'd buy up some ports and some important farming land so they could get their supplies in and so they could feed their army <laughs> That's how I'd do it if I was the Chinese. Okay, but let's just say that they actually came in with an army and, like, invaded physically. Would you kind of, if people started saying, like, you know, let's just say that, you know, our mates kind of said, dude, you know, there's people meeting here. We're going to get some AK-47s from, let's just say we got some AK-47s and we're going to fucking, we're going to fight them. Would you do it? Uh, there's not a lot of places to run from Australia. Run from Australia. Well, run to. Run to. From here. I guess you could go inland, but it's just going to turn into desert. Well, yeah, there's not a lot in there. Yeah. For a long way. Um, it really, there's, as a hypothetical, there's so many variables that you can put on there. If you're in Europe or if you're in a lot of the world, there's a lot of interconnection. It's a lot more, it's a lot easier to set off on foot and somehow find your way to somewhere better. Yeah. Whereas from Australia, the same reason that sort of protects us from all the boat people is that there's a huge moat yeah. uh, provided by a couple of oceans. Yeah. So you need to have a boat for one. You probably need to get you know, a crew and a captain to have the boat and a bunch of people together make it worthwhile yeah. to support that whole operation. So, And then the other thing is, is China sinking the boats as people run away or are they just letting it happen? Yeah. Or you know, is any what's, what's the deal with Australians being accepted in other places? Yeah. Um, I think ideally you'd want to see it coming three months off or six months off and start putting your money in some sort of Swiss bank account and other foreign assets and then try and get out before the war happens. That'd be the clever thing to do. So it, there's, there's so many variables there. But if it came down to it, um, it depends how the, what, how the invasion plays out. You know, are they like with the Nazis and they're putting people in camps and there's every chance, if you're one of the people that could be next, there's a very high incentive then to either get the hell out of there or if you are staying, you want to be fighting because even if you're not fighting and you just try and get along and try and fit into the new Nazi society, they might take you away next. Because there are plenty of Nazi sympathisers in all sorts of countries throughout Europe who are detested now after the fact. But they worked with the Nazis when they came in, in Denmark, in Norway, yeah, um, probably Holland, probably France as well. Plenty of Nazi sympathisers who sort of, well, this is the new paradigm. Uh, it's going to be a Nazi state. So would you say sympathisers or, you know, it is what it is? Probably some sympathisers and probably plenty more pragmatists who just yeah. sort of, you know, this is the new order. This is the, the government that's here now. Um, business goes on as usual. You still have to eat, still have to do everything else. Um, and now I just report to the Schutzstaffel, you know. I report to SS officer Krauts and <laughs> that's just how it is now. He's the new mayor or he's the new authority in town. Yeah. 
So um, you think that you would be assuming it was the Chinese that invaded? You would be a Chinese sympathizer. Sympathizer. Oh, it, it's so hard to say, but I'd think well, not a sympathizer, but you'd just kind of, if if life could somewhat go on as normal. Well, how are they treating the people, and how are they invading? And I think what makes it also hard to answer is that in this day and age, war is really expensive. Mm. and not a great option, especially between first world countries. It's so much more profitable for everybody to take over with trade and financial means. So, for example, the Chinese buying up land here or buying up ports or facilities and and individual people in China getting their money out of China and buying up any property they can in, in, in Sydney and Australia um, as a means of getting assets outside of the control or outside of the potential control of the Chinese, excuse me, uh, government, um, that's a much more efficient thing to do. It's really expensive and difficult, and it brings condemnation to go and you know into a country and kill everyone. Especially a very productive country like Australia, it's just much more easy to sort of gradually move in, and you know for the cost of having a war in terms of lives, but just economically in terms of disruption to everyone's regular lives when you've got to put into a war effort, it's just not worth it. So it's very unlikely to happen. Well, that's just... You get a lot more saber-rattling, I think, with, like, the South China Sea. Yeah. And you might get little skirmishes here and there, but total war and a total invasion. Even a shitty country like Afghanistan, you can see how much money and time and effort and lives it takes from a lot of, of, you know, Afghani lives, but a lot of, um, you know, importantly for the voters and people that are funding it, their own lives. You know, American soldiers, a couple of Australians and whoever else, English probably, but... You know, there's a toll. It's a very real toll involved. Mm. And they went there for, I don't know, I guess it was, it was a, well, ostensibly it was about the 9-11 thing. Um, and then maybe it was a bit of ideology there or a bit of, certainly in Iraq, I think there's a bit of like ideology with Bush getting back at the man that tried to kill his daddy. So he thinks. Yeah. Um, but it's just really expensive. And, re- and what, what do you gain? If you're Hal Burton or Lockheed Martin, you gain a few contracts, that's for sure. But overall, if there's not these special interest groups that have their sort of, you know, um, influence into policy, and China's a very holistic thing, so the government, it would seem, even those private companies, they're all sort of Chinese companies. So they, and they've, they're sort of, their legitimacy as a party, even though there's only one party, their legitimacy comes from economic empowerment, or, ec- or not empowerment, economic Uplifting, so they've lifted millions, hundreds of millions of Chinese out of poverty, and done a really good job of increasing the quality of life for so many Chinese. That even though the air is shitty or they treat people badly in some instances, a lot more people, many, many more people, have benefited from the regime mm. or the regime, the the one party in China. And so the legitimacy comes from economic growth. And so if they then entered into some big shitty war like America did, where there's uh, contraction on growth and it affects just affects the economy and affects the national budget in a very bad way. And, and everyday Americans, or in this case, Chinese people feel that, feel that, um, then that's not good. No. Especially for effectively sort of not elected government where the legitimacy comes from increasing economic prosperity. Mm. So it's this yeah. sort of, I mean, what you're talking about there, it kind of just makes me think that, you know, whenever you get those like, I don't know, like Armageddon, people sh- you know, shouting that it's going to be like World War Three. I just can't really imagine World War Three actually happening. Can you? Uh, 
I think it's just very unlikely because it's better for everybody if that doesn't happen. And that's why I think the Cold War didn't escalate into a hot war was because everybody, at least at some level, someone in the chain of command when you're told to fire the missiles was thinking this is crazy. You know, if the entire if, if mad happens, mutually assured destruction, the whole world will end and that's not in anyone's interest. Mm. And, you know, there's a few of those stories out there when like asteroids have come in and no one's known about it. So the radars picked up some objects which look like American missiles or whatever. And then the Russian guy's been ordered to fire back and then they've sort of gone, you know, I'm not going to do that because they haven't fired because that would be madness. There's yeah. no way they've fired missiles. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's what I've always thought about that. Uh, but at the same time, there's, you know, probably like a dozen or more nuclear submarines around the world from England, USA, Russia, maybe China. I don't know. It's certainly those three countries, maybe more. They've got nuclear submarines around the world on missions of MAD so that if the country gets bombed, then there's a new there's a nuclear asset out there which can then fire an ICBM upon the offending country. You mean they're just out in the ocean right now? Yeah. So their mission is that so the nuclear submarines. So they've got effectively unlimited fuel, right? Or, okay. More or less. The, I'm not sure how long the nuclear fuel lasts for, but it's longer than anything any other concern. The, the real thing that limits them is food. Yeah. Because they they've got oxygen scrubbers, so they've got limited air. They've got nuclear fuel, so they've got virtually unlimited fuel for all intents and purposes. Uh, it's a submarine, so it's underwater and more or less undetectable. Mm. Oh, there's a lot of research into making them undetectable and detecting them. Yeah. Um, and what limits them is food. So I think I think nine months is the American submarines as long as they can go out, and I'm guessing they would be at the pinnacle. And maybe you know for operational reasons they actually go out for longer, or they can do more, and they don't tell anyone because mm. you never really know these things. But they get you know at least nine months of like operational time out there. So they load the submarine with food. They go on a secret route that no one knows or very few people know. And they're just out there in the water waiting. Um, and they never they never surface. Uh, well, the idea is to be hidden. So maybe they surface every three months or something or they dock or whatever they do. But they essentially they're out there. There's always something out there, some asset out there mm. with the capability of striking back. And then the enemy, whoever that may be, doesn't know where it is. And so can't take it out. So there's always this nuclear asset there waiting to strike back on whoever blows up the country. And it's a, it's an insurance policy. Mm. Yeah. But, you know, as many left-wing people would say, you know, war, war is not necessary. We don't have to have war. You know, why, why should we have them out there? We just shouldn't have war. What's your response to that? Does anyone really say that and think about it and have that as a serious point of view? They're probably serious about it, although perhaps they don't reason. Yeah, I've met a few enough. idiots. Like I remember chatting to this girl ages ago, um, and she was saying how bad it was about the nuclear bombs being dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Well, it was pretty shit. It, like uh, from a certain point of view, it's you know it's like what eighty thousand people died in one of them. It's like, and they're they're not people that are fighting necessarily. But they are though. It's total war. Total war means that you know uh, right. that, that's, well, why, hang, that's why hang, you couldn't hang get on, food hang, at home. Hang on a second, though, because you're saying, um, you know, when the Nazis invaded, uh, you know, grab a country, any fucking country, you're going to have sympathisers and you're going to have people who are against it. Yeah. So you can't just. It's like you know when uh, Australia went to, you know, war in Afghanistan or whatever. 
it's not like the entire all of Australia was like fuck Afghanistan. A lot of people like we don't. Yeah, but that was very far from total war. So total war is when every that so the last total war that I'm aware of anyway, and certainly on a global level was World War Two. Everything, all of industry, all of everyone, it goes to the war effort. You can't get butter because the butter goes to the front lines. You can't get new things made out of tin or iron or certainly aluminium because all the aluminium goes into aircraft bodies. All of the iron goes into cast iron engine blocks for tanks or, or you know, or rifles or mm. whatever. You can't get so many things because everything in the economy is geared towards the war effort, towards making, you know, bombs, shells, artillery. Okay, um, yeah, yeah. However... Sometimes, you know, if, if that's the only job you can get, you know, if, you, if you're only employed to, okay, you know, we need you to build fucking, I don't know, bullets or whatever. Yeah. Do you think then if this person's just, that's just a job that they happen to get because, you know, it's a job and they can't really do anything else. I mean, I know I'm speaking really kind of simpl- simplicit, simplistically here, but... Do you think it's justified then for the enemy to kill that person or, you know, kill those people en masse? Because we're talking about civilians here who aren't really – it's not like they're, you know, all the time thinking about how to destroy the enemy. Well, not to deal with it philosophically, but just pragmatically, that's how that war was fought. There was the, um, you know, the Battle of Britain. Where they, they the is that after that, the war ended? No, this is this is during the oh, war. When, sorry, when, when the Nazis, the Nazis yeah, never yeah, got yeah. to Britain. This is when they were flying in the Channel on land. Yeah, they flew yeah, yeah. across and they'd blow the fuck out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know the town, mm. people's houses. You go, you hear the air raid siren. You go underground into the shelters. Mm. You hope you don't get blown up. Um, civilians, everybody, mm. all the children got sent out to the country where they were less likely to get blown up. Um, so every, all the kids got separated from their families and put with random families in the country. You would have black curtains at night time and have only, say, one light in the house, one candle in the house. You didn't go out after dark with light because that was a target then that could be seen. Um, and then there was, the, you know, on the Allies' side, there was the firebombing of Dresden where they didn't have nuclear That bombs, was after. They, wasn't that after? Wasn't there somewhere This is that, all World War Two. Yeah, but there was... I mean, I'm, I'm getting off topic, but there was... I think the English bombed somewhere in Germany Dresden? after. So that's what, yeah, after the war ended. No. No? After the war ended. After the war ended, I Germany think, became West Germany and East Germany and Berlin became East and West Berlin. Right. And Russia owned half and right. the Allies owned the other half. I don't, and that was like part of the Cold War, mm. which sort of started like almost straight after. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but so didn't the I'm, British I'm, didn't the British bomb? It might not be Dresden, but I'm sure that the British bombed somewhere after the war had ended, and they kind of weren't supposed to because well, uh, the war had ended. You'll have to educate me on that because I'm not aware of it. Well, I, I can look it up, I guess. Um, but um, but the thing is, though, that's how it was. Total war, so the entire nation, you know, whether you liked it or not, you were sort of conscripted into it was geared towards the war effort then. So yeah, really, it, makes, instead it does of, make instead sense. Of fighting people, if you can blow up the train tracks so they can't get they can't get brass to the bullet factory, then they stop making bullets from that factory. If you can blow up the bullet factory, they stop making bullets. If you can destroy the refineries, then they can't get fuel and oil to their vehicles. Mm. You know, it's so much more effective to destroy the supply line than to actually fight the enemy directly. And civilians work in those things but are they still civilians that you can get into an argument there but if you're making bullets to shoot the enemy 
you know, you're not firing them, but you're part of that whole machine. Okay, what if you're a baker? You're baking bread for the enemy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that, that's kind of just how it was. Like, you know, yeah, you get blown. Maybe you don't agree with the war, but that's just bad luck. Yeah. There's something so much bigger than you. There's an organization, a nation, a concept that exists, which has a conceptual war with another group of people, another nation, and you might be going against the grain, but you're still caught up in it. Just like you can have a rather large piece of hail fall on your head and kill you. Mm. That's just bad luck. Yeah. And yeah. in terms of the Japanese, I, I, yeah. they, they released a whole lot of firebombs into the slipstream hoping to set um, huge forest fires in the in the northern in North America. Uh, and that failed because the firebombs didn't blow up. Mm. I can't remember why. They got wet or they were shit or something. It actually killed six Boy Scouts after the war. And those are the only – because they came across it in, in a forest. And then it, They're the only – as far as I'm aware, I could be wrong, they're the only deaths oh, – excluding Pearl Harbor on, – on the contiguous United States. They're the only deaths from World War II. And it was after the fact. Mm. Maybe it was during the war, I'm not sure. But, but people didn't die in USA – in USA mm. – um, excluding Pearl Harbor, during the war is all sort of foreign, which is why the USA came out so strong because they weren't devastated like Europe was. Yeah, well, geo geopolitically and geographically, um, they're in a good fucking location, really. I don't know, it's like, I guess, I guess it's like comes back to, you, you know, you're saying, you know, immigration, it's, it's harder for people to immigrate illegally to Australia because we are so disconnected and in in a way America is in a good geographical location to well I guess control a lot of the oceans which I believe they do yeah and as a nation there's a good population with good connectivity fantastic their trains are shit but they're not the passenger trains are shit what's really really good in the states is mm. freight rail I think they actually have I'm not sure how you measure this but I've heard they have the best or the most efficient freight rail system in the world which is why the passenger trains are so shit because all the freight companies own the tracks and so they then lease them to the freight, the passenger trains and they obviously give priority to their own freight vehicles. Mm. Um, but so they've got, they've got that going for them. And then they have enormous amounts of arable land where they can grow a lot of food. Uh, they're, they're a food exporter. They grow more food than they consume. Um, they've got enormous energy reserves. Especially so they grow more food than they consume. That's correct. Really? So well, they, I guess they, they're, they're a food exporter. Yeah. Or they're okay. a net. They're a net, or you can be an exporter without um, growing more than you consume. But they're a net exporter. Mm. Um, they've got fantastic energy reserves in terms of oil and gas. Um, I don't know. if They have any nuclear fuel? They must do. Surely they must. I don't know about that. But anyway, fantastic conventional energy energy reserves. Um, fantastic minerals and resources throughout the entire land. A lot of coal, for instance. Actually, that's conventional energy. Mm. Uh, they're really well positioned geographically. There's a lot going for America or the United States as a nation, as mm. a geographical lump of land. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's um, it's you know what I read about in the book Next One Hundred Years, George Friedman. Um, but he basically starts off the book, you know, saying America's fucking great, and I'm like, oh, this guy sounds just like he's, you know, a, a, you know, a, a patriotic sort of guy. But that's not the angle he was actually going for. He's just saying, objectively, America is the best because they're just in control. And then he goes into like the geographic location, and that they, according to him, do control the world's oceans. Like shit can't happen without America's permission. Well, their navy is what like 
huge. Four or seven times bigger than the next yeah. one along? Mm. Or it's as big as like the next six countries combined or something? Yeah. And the biggest air force in the world is the United States Air Force. And the second biggest air force is the United States Navy. <laughs> well, that's just it though. They they do control. Well, they, they're kind of, you know, they are the world police <laughs> in a way. Um, Which comes at quite a cost to the average American. In what sense? In terms of tax dollars. I get you. Yeah. But. It's also a huge social welfare program too. How do you mean? Because uh, you can get a job in the army. Yeah. It's a shit job. You know, so the American army employs a huge amount of people. Well, apparently there's a lot of people that kind of, at least this is a, what is it, Michael Moore, in one of his documentaries, Michael Moore basically, you know, hit the conclusion of one of his films is that, you know, oh, you know, a lot of people in, you know, shitty socioeconomic situations have no choice but to join the army. Uh, And, you know, it's kind of, in a way, it's, at least according to him, it's a shitty thing because, well, I can't get a job doing anything else, so I'll join the army and then I'll go off to war, you know, and fight America's wars. Yeah. I don't have a lot of time for that rich cunt with his condescending... I'm not, I'm, not saying that, I'm not saying that he's right or wrong. My opinion is that from a certain perspective, I guess he's right, but I don't yeah, know... Yeah, I, I can totally see that. Um, and I've also, from friends that are in the military who have like served in, say, Afghanistan and Iraq and then served alongside the American guys, hmm. the way I've heard it put is they are the best of the best and they've got the worst of the worst. Right. There's a lot of, sh- you know... Stupid people? In yeah, the- just dregs. No, not dregs. P- people, who, not the best of the best, hmm. who... You know, they're just a mechanic or they're just uh, a truck driver or they, they do the shit jobs. So they've got the best of the best and really bright, fantastic people who are very well educated and very intelligent and, you know, very well versed in history and, and strategy and all sorts of technical aspects. And they've also got plenty of shit cunts to do all the, you know, all the shit kicker work. Mm. Well, um, kind of an interesting sort of perspective on that. Um, have you heard of Jocko Willink? Mm-hmm. You have or you haven't? Mm. So he was no, a, not. he was a Navy SEAL, and he talks about you know as an example the difference between Navy SEALs and just your know, standard Marine. Um, Marine Marines just your kind of standard. Is that is that what it is? It's, it's a branch of the mil. Or is it actually Marines? Sounds like it's a branch of the Navy, but yeah, I got the idea. That Marines are like your standard sort of better foot soldiers. soldier. There's regular soldiers, but I think the Marines are a cut above, mm. and they may be more geared towards being like riflemen. I think, okay. as opposed to a regular soldier, might just be a truck driver or a radio operator. Yeah, well, or then a gunner or whatever. Then take what I say under the guise that I'm incorrect with at least the labels. But I, I think he was talking about Marines, but he said the difference between Marines and your Navy SEALs in like. You know Afghanistan and Iraq. You, your Navy SEALs. You know there's a handful of them in comparison to you know the rest of the army because mm-hmm. they're like the the best, the best, the best. You know whatever. Well, they they seem that they are. They like get better training and they they go well, through. Well, you know when you deliberately filter from a yeah. large group of people. Yeah, through Hell Week. And then you get the best of the best of the best. Yeah. You know if you choose the best of the best of the best, there's a good chance then that. You've, it's not just random sampling. Yeah, yeah. You've chosen because they got to go through hell week, and that's at least from what I hear, it's fucked. It's unpleasant. Yeah, that, you know that's one way. Very of Very unpleasant. It. Yeah, 
so yeah, you, you're gonna you know you're gonna get rid of the people you know who physically can't hack it and who mentally and emotionally can't hack it. Sure, you're gonna get guys who are fucking absolutely a cut above the rest. But he's saying that you know your Navy SEALs they'll go on specific missions and they're more of um they instigate things they they uh, make actions mm-hmm. they take actions they act and he's saying that your Marines they kind of react mm-hmm. and. You know, as an example, they might be sitting in a truck, you know, just kind of hanging out and then, you know, a fucking bomb could go off under the truck or they're driving just, a, you know, a, what do they call them? Um, IED? Yeah, just on your road and just bang, done. And he's kind of saying it's a shitty job in comparison to being a SEAL because a SEAL, you're obviously trained better, but you, you aren't kind of just waiting for something to happen, mm-hmm. whereas the Marines are basically waiting for shit to get fucked up. I think a thing with the war over there, though, is that once you've driven your front lines to the extent of the country and you control it, they then just sort of hung out and and did area control. Mm. And then so much of the job that has to get done then is no longer fighting or clearing or or fording. Mm. It's logistics. Yeah. Because the American military, any military, but especially the American one, has such a high demand for very... Or just logistically. So like their tanks, for instance, the M1 Abrams, uh, unlike many, many other tanks, doesn't have a diesel engine. It has a jet turbine engine um, or a turbine engine. And so it needs um, avgas. Right. And a lot more maintenance because a turbine needs more maintenance than um, that, a, that a diesel engine does. Um, and so you need people that are qualified to do that. You need the avgas. Um, I don't think they have as, as large a range. They certainly need a lot more maintenance more regularly than these other vehicles. Mm. It's got a good power to weight is why they chose it, I believe. And maybe its thermal signature is better. Maybe it's not. I can't remember. Anyway. but um, And everything else, you know, all these all these vehicles, all these people, they need food, all the telecommunications needs, all these IT support, um, people that know about radar. Um, remember I showed you that awesome gun which shoots down missiles and they're incoming? Yeah, it just sounds like a... Like yeah. not even, not even just, yeah. Um, it's like gun. EDM on steroids. Could, what, 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 do you remember what the link was? Because we'd be able to hear it. It's yeah, on YouTube, um, right? Is it called the CRAM, I think? Sorry. The CRAM, C-R-A-M, or something like that. Because uh, I'm pretty sure the technology came from the Navy because it's to shoot well, that just looks in, like missiles. Incoming missiles from um, – that are coming towards the boat, and it's like the last line of defense is to shoot them down. Yeah. Uh, but then they've adapted it and put it on the back of trucks, and then it also um, shoots down. Yeah, it just has music. It doesn't actually have the sound of them. Yeah, if you type Scud attack Iraq and maybe shoot down or something. I've actually got it... Um, there's a night. There's an awesome nighttime attack video which I've actually got saved. The link that looks like it there. Actually, that that one there is it. Maybe. What does that say? No, it says UK soldiers get cut up by Taliban fighters. Okay. It's actually a UK video. I think the one which I saw. Dude, there's some fucking you. crazy shit on YouTube. Yeah. Look at there's like you one go to live leak. UK soldier takes shrapnel to the face in Afghanistan. Jesus Christ, dude. Uh, but I watched that video actually when I sort of get a bit, um, you know, wayward about studying engineering or about studying like control systems or whatever. Because mm. I sort of think the amount of ingenuity that has to go into making a gun, which is radar guided, which detects things coming in faster than the speed of sound, tracks where they are, tracks where they're going to be, aims its gun and fires bullets, you know, 4,000 rounds per minute 
at them to blow them out of the sky before they can kill your own soldiers. That's very, very incredible. And, yeah, this looks like the system. Can't hear anything, though. Yeah, wait. It'll... Is this just a test or is it actually going to go? I don't know. This must be fascinating for people to listen to. No, now how we can maybe we can edit it. That's a pretty fast gun. That's probably about a thousand dollars. What that just went in off three in three seconds? Because <laughs> those bullets—they're huge. They're about like a hundred millimeters long. What? And I think they're about fifty. 50 millimetres wide or... No, that, that's too big. Yeah. It's going to go off again in a second. 20 millimetres or something? Here we are. Actually, a guy I used to work with um, was in the British Navy and they had those on the boat. Yeah. You know, he said when it went off, because the boats are made of steel, yeah. it just reverberated around the entire hull and they set them off quite often because they test them. Yeah. Um, well, it looks like they were testing it just then. Yeah, so so much of what... They do in the army and the navy and all the all these forces is you know there's such little fighting that goes on, often. Mm. They're doing maintenance. They're doing preventative maintenance. They're doing inspections. They're making sure all these systems work. And that's sort of like relating to um, that ten percent being the difference. So if you you know when you do these drills, when you do this maintenance, it probably doesn't matter. You know if you oil that gun every day and it never gets used, that's an incredible waste of resources. Yeah. But that one day when you've got no idea at three a.m. And some, you know, Iraqi jets or whoever, Chinese, whoever is flying in to bet, you know, to fire some surface to sea missiles at your boat and blow you out of the water and sink the whole thing and kill everyone. That's when you need that gun to be oiled, maintained, all the computer systems are working, all the servos that keep it aimed, everything needs to be spot on and working because that moment is the difference between life and death for 200 of your, you know, closest work colleagues. Yeah. And that's why every day you go and oil the barrels and you go and test the machine and you go and, you know, go through its maintenance and everything. Uh, and it seems like a colossal waste of everyone's time, resources and money. But when it comes down to the wire, you absolutely need everything. You need, you know, say you've got three of them on the boat, they all, you know, if one of them's not working, you've just lost 33% of your capi- um, capability yeah. to defend the boat. Hmm. Uh, and if the guns are out of action or, you know, the, the auto loader on the cannon is not working or whatever, um, and then all of a sudden, the, you know, you're under attack by someone else, then you've just lost one of your main weapons. And, you know, it, it always, you don't know when it's going to count, but when it does, it's all hands on deck and it's, you know, all going. You need to push it to 120% because mm. it's life or death. Yeah. It sort of, sort of harks back then. So there's incredibly diminishing returns. They do, you know, be doing a drill once a week where the boat's on fire and then you practice putting the water or putting the fire out. Mm. You know, and it's it's taxing and it's mentally taxing and people might get injured in the rush because, you you know, you're rushing around to put out this fake fire. But when the boat does catch on fire because you're in a war, you need to put it out quick because it'll spread to the control room or it'll, you know, detonate your ammunition or whatever. So that's why you do the drills and that's why you put all this effort into something that may never happen because when it does happen, it's literally life or death. If only we as human beings did that sort of stuff in our own personal lives. Well, the thing is, though, people are evolutionarily bred to be lazy because if you did live your life like that, it takes so much effort and energy, energy particularly. Mm. 
So if you only catch a gazelle, you know, once a month, you can't afford to be practicing to catch that gazelle every damn day because you then need to catch one every week. Yeah. And there just may not be those resources around. That's why when you don't do anything, you get fat and lazy and sort of reduce muscle mass because that muscle mass is actively taking resources to be um, supported, to, to exist, to increase your metabolic rate. So you need to catch more food. You need to, you need to be a more active. Well, if you're not active then you're not supporting it, so then it goes away. Sort of, It's, it's a natural mechanism for survival. Mm. So in the lean times, you can get very lean and you can still then survive mm. until the times are better. So there's a reason behind it. And the reason we don't you know, do that in our everyday lives is because it just, it's a lot of effort and a lot of work. Um, and often it's not life or death. If your car you know, breaks down, you call NRMA, it's not life or death. But if your Humvee breaks down and the Taliban is shooting at you, then you're pretty fucked. You better call in an airstrike pretty quick and hope that the boys back at the airstrip have those planes serviced on the runway ready to go. Mm. There was a time when the Cuban Missile Crisis, I think it was the Cuban Missile Crisis, was really, really like, I think that was the time and it was really, really hot and you know, nuclear war was as close as it's ever been. And there were jets on the runway burning fuel, fully ready to go, 24-7. Really? With, with nuclear bombs in them. Really? ready to take off as soon as the order went through. So, you know, because it takes, if you get the order like now, I don't know, it takes maybe four hours to prep the jet. So you do all your pre-flight checks, you check the engines, you fuel them up because you probably don't leave them fueled on the runway or on the runway, they're in the hangar. So it takes maybe four hours to get them out onto the thing, get the pilot ready, you know, suit up, you know, all your pre-flight checks, whatever. Um, That takes, you know, so many hours, whatever. And so the more ready you get, the more expensive it is. And they were at the stage where they could take off in like, you know, eight minutes or something or four minutes because the jets were on the runway, fueled up with bombs in them, with a pilot there ready to go uh, for like, you know, for for a couple of days or weeks or whatever it was. And it was costing a huge amount of money, but that's sort of in the same vein as preparation and in terms of energy consumption, in terms of being ready for something. Mm. And they were obviously then at DEFCON 1 or whatever, ready to launch jets into the air to you know, to have assets in the air so they could go and strike back against the Russians if the unthinkable happened. So you think they'd have guys sitting in the actual cockpit? I don't know, maybe. You just sit in the cockpit for a four-hour shift mm. and then you're, you know, like then the, the aircraft can only sit there so long before it needs more maintenance. So then you've got the next one ready to go. That one goes off to the hangar. You do your, you know, for every one hour of running, there's like so many hours of maintenance. So you've got a huge team of guys doing maintenance on all these jets and pouring fuel into them and they're just sitting on the runway waiting, ready to go. And then the, the, the jets are turned on. Yeah, they were, well, what I've read about this, I didn't, you know, I assume it's true. Mm. They were ready to go. And it's the same thing, like, you know, it's very expensive to have these nuclear submarines chock-a-block full of food underwater for, for nine months at a time with guys being paid to be out there, getting their away from home leave or pay and, you know, it's just expensive to have big metal vessels underwater. Mm. Uh, but they do it because it's a preparedness, it's an insurance, it's something that doesn't actually need to be done. So if you had total optimization and we could predict all the results, you wouldn't have these insurance, you wouldn't need insurance mm. if you knew it was going to happen. Yeah, Insurance is against the unexpected or something which may happen. Mm. But if you had 100% certainty about something, you don't need insurance because you then, if you know you're going to crash your car, I don't know what you do, you you buy the panels you're going to break or you have a mm. second car waiting. Or you have the money there to fix it. But you don't know if you're going to crash your car into a Bentley or not at all. So you pay, you know, 300 bucks for, for third-party insurance. Yeah. Well, it's, it's kind of like 
it kind of relates to people's diet or exercise. I guess people, well, I mean, I guess you can still die anyway, but you probably stand a better chance of living biologically. You know, you're not going to get a disease or something if you eat better and you exercise. But a lot of people just don't do it because they don't, they don't have that forward thinking or that sort of preparedness. There's a multitude of things at play, though. If you, you know, if you heard that saying, um, if you don't drink and you don't smoke and you don't party, you don't live any longer. It just seems longer. <laughs> I haven't, but it makes sense. Uh, so there's that element too, you know, and, and human lives and national security are not quite the same thing. No. Um, you know, the nation doesn't need to party. Although it should, <laughs> but um, whereas individuals, you know, you have different needs and desires and wants mm. and you can sort of philosophically reason any way you wanted to where maybe you're better off than drinking and smoking and enjoying your life than not doing those things, living to 120 mm. and just being bored out of your skull. You could say, what's the point in living? Mm. Well, I mean, some people might get more enjoyment out of other things. Oh, you know, just for argument's sake, in yeah. terms of name your drug of choice. People yeah. that you know eat too much cake and then get fat. <laughs> well, they, you could you could prosecute the argument that they got more utility in terms of their life enjoyment out mm. of eating the cake than they would have had they denied themselves the cake and then not enjoyed the party or not enjoyed the day or whatever. Yeah. All right, let's pause for a sec. I got to piss. All right, so we're going to listen to this CWIS so thing. This, this is the uh, the CWIS. This is the thing, the phalanx, the land-based one. This is the video clip that I was telling you about that I watch when I get in, need to get inspired about engineering again. <laughs> it literally just looks like just lights in the sky, like like a, a like a snake. In there's the sky. Phos phosphorus tracer rounds. So there's more bullets. What you can see, at every tenth or whatever. It sounds like a chainsaw or something. That's. What's some, the, what's the guy saying? Is get some he get some so it's probably like an artillery um, team. Mm. So get some get some high explosive rounds so we can fire back. Yeah. So if, if anyone wants to see the actual video, it's phalanx like a phalanx like an old Greek phalanx, C I W S shooting forward slash defending at night. It's, it's it sounds like a fucking chainsaw. Like yeah. Well, they <laughs> so I think those are mortar rounds probably. Mm. So they get fired up in the air, then they come down. Probably not at the speed of sound, actually, those particular ones. But Right. So the system, the radar, identifies it as a target, tracks it, its trajectory and where it's going to go, and then fires the rounds at it and knows where the rounds are going to be in, in, in real time and tracks, you know, you fire it here to there. So you've got to fire not where it is but where it's going to be. Yeah. And then you fire 4,000 rounds a minute, which is what it does. That's what that a sound minute. is. A minute. That's what that... Sound is. That's sort of what it sounded like. You, you can't even hear the individual. So what's that? Um, so three thousand six hundred divided by sixty would be. You want me to put it in a calculator? What's that? Sixty times a second. So it's probably firing something like sixty-five. Yeah, what's four thousand divided by sixty? I think it's about sixty-five rounds a minute. Oh, a second rather. Oh, this calculator's run out of gas. 
Um, hang on a second. It'd be 66, 66.6 rounds a second, I think. 4,000 divided by 6. 60. 60. Well, 4,000 rounds a minute is the nominal sort of... 66.67. Yep. Yeah. So every single second, 66 rounds leave the barrel. Or it's, there's multiple barrels, but... That's insane. And each round would cost, I reckon, a dollar. At least. God, can you imagine that going through a human being? So every minute, it probably cost about $4,000 to fire that gun just in ammunition alone, plus the maintenance, plus the, you know, the yeah, like the, the maintenance that goes into running it. So every so many hours, you need to, I don't know, grease up the motors or replace whatever mm. you have to replace on it. Fuck, uh, man. But, you know, when, when a Scud missile lands in your camp and blows some people to bits and damages your equipment and ends human lives, that's also really expensive. So that combined, you know, like probably combined one minute or whatever of firing from those various guns there. Mm. So, you know, let's say with the maintenance, probably $10,000. That's really cheap. Yeah. Yeah. And incredible that you're blowing, thing, you're blowing enemy ammunition out of the sky. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I see, I, I have no problem with, you know, if, if I go to my, you know, peace-loving side, I have no problem with that sort of weaponry being created because it's not killing anybody, it's stopping people from dying. It's Yeah, it, but the thing is then they know where it's fired from because they can then track it on radar and track the trajectory. And then the artillery team, when he's yelling, get the HE, you know, mm. they then get the coordinates from the radar guys, I'm guessing for the radar guys, and then they then they can fire back very accurately with their artillery. Oh, there you go. Uh, and then they kill the enemy. But that's that, that's, that's how it goes. That's war. Yeah. They didn't fire that shell, you know, to not kill people. Yeah. Hmm. Do you think, like, do you think there could ever be, do you think the planet could ever not be at war? You'd need to get less, if you had enough resources for everybody. Mm. It gets complicated, though, when there's sort of like ideological resources. So Jerusalem as a city there's a few people that want to get their hands on that. I think there's four groups. What are they? So there's the Christians, the Jews, and the the Islams. The Islamists. <laughs> Damn Islam. No, the, the Muslims, I guess. There's a distinction there between Muslim and Islam, isn't there? Though? But anyway, whatever. There's there's three main players. But I thought there was four. Uh, Do the Coptics God. or the Orthodox get treated as their own group, perhaps? In that, there's the I there's, don't know. there's like the so there's Catholicism and Orthodoxy, which was the the schism in the church mm. in. I used to know the date for that. 1208? I think. Can you look that up? When the Great Schism happened? The Great Schism. I believe that's how it's pronounced. I could be making an answer myself. Well, we're going to find out. The East-West Schism, also called the Great Schism, and the Schism of 1054. 1054, okay. It was the break of the communion between what are now the Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic churches, mm. which lasted since the 11th century. So that might be, they're, they're considered two groups then. There's an Orthodoxy claim and a Catholic, and then hence all you know, um, child religions from that mm. uh, claim to Jerusalem, which would make the four, I guess. But yeah, so with Jerusalem, that, that's an ideological resource, which... Is sort of by definition, or not by definition, but it is limited. There's only one Jerusalem, and they all kind of want it. Mm. Whereas when it comes to fresh water and stuff, that's also very much in demand, but you could, in theory, have enough for everyone. Mm. So, but there's always going to be haves and have nots. Um, and as long as, you know, all men are created equal is an is ideological load of shit, 
because mm. uh, some people are born substandard and some people are born above standard. And in a meritocracy, they're then going to, you know, the cream's going to rise to the top and they're going to have more. Mm. So and those people might be unhappy, they have less. So there's always going to be an imbalance there. So I think there's always going to be a certain level of conflict or tension sort of inherent to any sort of society where resources is unequally distributed, even if it's distributed by merit. And then if it wasn't distributed by merit, it was distributed evenly in some sort of socialist utopia, the people that produce more might say, well, you know, I work longer, I work harder when I do work, or I, at least I work more productively. Why don't I get more? So yeah. I, I think there's always going to be, unless you had some sort of world where no matter, there's unlimited resources, and even then you probably still get people that just want to, you know, in human nature, they like an ideological resource like Jerusalem, you, you create something which there can only be one of. And then mm. you still get competition. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's just too idealistic. I don't think it's possible to... There's a surprising number of people in um, at engineering school who are pacifists. Actually, particularly guys that are actually doing Pacifist physics. Pacifists or pacifists? Pacifist. Pacifists, right, okay. Um, what did I say? I think you said pacifists. What would that mean? I guess and they're a pacifier. They no, if you if you're like passive, you're. It's well, a pacifist is someone who just doesn't believe in violence at all. They won't. Yeah, they're that sort of people. I don't. I don't quite know what the definition of a pacifist would be, if it even is existence. I can quickly check it out. But you mean pacifist? Yeah, there are a lot of people that are like that. So not the military guys. Yeah, it says, "Did you mean pacifist?" Yeah, but there's like other pacifists in. The quality of being passive. I guess that also describes them, perhaps. But um, certainly yeah, pacifists. sort of. It's just basically they just don't want to get involved, I guess, a pacifist. Yeah. Well, these, these guys want to get involved in not killing anyone. And that just seems so naive. Well, I mean, you can do it if you choose to be a, you know, if you just want to be a fucking librarian. Particularly people, though, that are um, like studying physics and stuff, you know, and then they, they like the idea of the Manhattan Project or, you know, at least like the, the whole physics thing behind it, and then they don't like the idea of the bomb. Well, they're inherently linked. You know, you'd never get one without the other. The entire idea of the Manhattan Project was to build an unimaginable bomb mm. to kill, our, kill all of our enemies. Uh, and all the fantastic things, like that sewer system we just saw, all the fantastic things happen when you hate somebody enough. <laughs> you know, during the Cold War, before the, um, I don't know if it existed in any way, shape or form, but before digital photography was a thing, mm. um, at least a usable thing, they had spy satellites that would take analog, you know, like um, silver ion photography. And so the camera was up there in the satellite with an awesome zoom. I'm not sure how they programmed it to fly over Russia and where and, and when. There's probably a whole heap of impressive, you know, engineering and science in that alone. But these satellites would take pictures and, and you know, have a roll of negatives then. And it would drop the negatives back to Earth and they would intercept this capsule in the air. Really? Yes. How? With jets with a big net. You're fucking kidding me. Look it up. I don't know what you look up. Spy satellite, conventional photography or Cold War spy satellite or... And then if the jets didn't catch it, they there was a team waiting to recover it at sea. So the Russians didn't get the photos and so they got their spy pictures. 
I don't know. I, I, I mean, that's, it is a tricky one to find. Watch a pilot snag Cold War battle satellite footage. Yeah. This sounds promising. Looks like they've got some... He's got a big net or yeah, something? Yeah, he's got a big back? net. And this is, oh, this goes to six minutes, so we're not going to sit here on the podcast and do it, but... Pickup, pickup. Roger, winch operator. We're climbing now. We'll be up at... I don't know, it looks like they have some sort of... Yeah, it looks like they have a giant net there. Yeah. That's insane. So the satellite would then jettison the negatives in a special capsule for re-entry. Yeah. And... Yeah. They would then um, intercept this... You know, it had a parachute, so it didn't just drop to Earth at, like, re-entry speed. Yeah. But they would then intercept this thing mid-air. And if they missed it, there was teams waiting at sea to go and recover it. That's and that's, that's how they got their spy photos back before digital photography and therefore like digital communication of the photos. Fucking crazy. Can you believe it? I, a I, fucking plane catch something out of midair that was dropped from a satellite, photographs. But how would they know the location it's going to be in? Well, the dropping. Yeah. Well, you can do all the maths on it. You get your slide rule out and work it out. The same thing they put men on the moon. Um, you, you know, you know... With timing, basically. So the satellite's got a certain orbit, so you would probably program it, you know, you put it on a trajectory so you know it's going to orbit across this part of Russia at this time. Mm. I don't know how they programmed it, whether the satellite was sent up pre-programmed, whether they could radio, like, um, telecommunicate to program the satellite or what, but they would have programmed it somehow and they would know that at this time, or, you know, like, at this time, which also means so many seconds from, like, a datum point, it's going to be over the Russian missile base. So then it's programmed to take, you know, three photos, one every five seconds, or one at this zoom, one at this zoom, one at this zoom, then again over a different area or whatever. Mm. Um, and then after it's taken them, then the satellite waits another predetermined amount of time until it's over the Pacific Ocean or whatever um, within a certain – and, you know, like with accurate clocks and with accurate predictions and, and accurate knowledge over its pathway, you know, with a certain certainty over where it's going to be. Then you jettison the pod and you know that it's got certain air resistance and it's going to fall at a certain speed and you could do all your calculus to work this out to a certain degree of precision. You know, it's going to fall within this certain area at a certain time. So then your planes are waiting with their net. Then the thing gets down and it's got an altimeter on it, so that uh, altimeter, so that it deploys its satellite at, I don't know, 10,000 feet. Sorry, no, satellite deploys its parachute at 10,000 feet or whatever. And then you see it, and then you go and intercept it in your plane. And if you miss it, then there's boats waiting in the area to go and recover it out of the water. Crazy. It may even have had something in there to self-destruct if you don't get to it within, you know, 24 hours or whatever. Mm. Uh, that's speculation on my part. But, you know, can you imagine catching it out of, you know, it falls from space and you catch it out of midair to get your spy photos back because you fucking hate the Russians that much. <laughs> I think that's fucking insane, man. You, it just shows some of the crazy shit that happens in wartime. Mm. Like, yeah, the Manhattan Project, like, literally, well, they, it was undertaken with the intent of blowing people to bits, right? Yeah. Because they, they, they weren't doing it go, oh, this is a fascinating discovery. Well, everyone, I think, so a lot of quantum physics came out in sort of like the 10s and 20s. Mm. Um, that was a really exciting period. And there's a lot of, like, new and exciting physics coming out. And so everyone was sort of aware of this idea around the 40s. So um, the Nazis in Norway, 
uh, somewhere up north that I can't remember now, they had a heavy water factory. Um, and why do you need heavy water? Because it traps the neutrons or something? I can't remember, but, but it's um, instead of hydrogen, I think it's deuterium or something. Mm. Don't quote me on that, but it's, it's, it's got an extra neutron, I think, in the, in the hydrogen, in the water. Mm-hmm. And it's, for some reason, necessary in produce, uh, producing like um, nuclear fuel mm. or the material you need. It, it's an important step in the nuclear process anyway. And it's very energy intensive. Um, and they had it up there for the hydro and also because it's out of the way. Mm. And there's a really good show how the Allies and some Norwegian and British commandos, I think, they flew in there. Skate, like camped for a few weeks in the snow, eating reindeer and stuff, and then they blew up this um, dam and heavy water facility. Really? So the Nazis were on the way to making a nuclear bomb as well. Hmm. Um, I imagine the Japanese, if they weren't on their way, they would like to have been. Yeah. Everyone kind of knew about it, um, but you've got to separate the hyd- uh, the uranium-238 from the 235 because you want the 235 because the 238 absorbs the neutron and becomes 239. When those neutrons are released, whereas the think the two three five accepts the neutron and then immediately breaks down and, and fission, you know, does, undergoes fission, mm. releases energy, releases two more neutrons or three more, and then if there's a chain, if there's two three eight around, they'll absorb those neutrons and stop the chain reaction. Right. If there's two three five, they'll accept those neutrons, become unstable, um, you know, undergo fission as well, split, release neutrons, hits the next ones, and then you get a chain reaction, which is the rapid, you know, um fission of this material, break mm. them down, you get the mass defect between 235 and whatever it turns into, mm. which is the equals MC squared energy. Yeah. Um, and that's a lot of energy released very quickly, which is what the bomb is, which then is is released as sort of like heat and then therefore expansion and just, you know, that that's where the energy comes from. But uh, there's something like 40,000 centrifuges or something because you get you turn the uranium into a gas. I don't know how that happens. It gets you boil it hot enough and they go through centrifuges and then there's like 40,000 stages where the heavier 238 gets separated outwards and the 235 stays in and then it's like each centrifuge is a filtering process. So as it goes through, you get a higher and higher percentage of 235 in, in your sample because uranium is like, I don't know, 99% 238 or something like that. Mm. Well, I mean, you're speaking a little bit beyond me. I mean, I understand the... There's a huge expensive process, like yep. just not even particularly scientific, like just an engineering project to get 40,000 centrifuges to power them and to build them and maintain them and design them mm. to spin out. Oh, they might have had a different process actually instead of centrifuges. It was some other process perhaps. Anyway, whatever, because now it's done by centrifuges. Maybe it was something else back then. It's a huge process, just a technical like project to get enough 235. Mm. And then you've got to get it to like, they ram it together really quickly and it hits critical mass, I think, critical density or critical, a critical point where there's enough together that it all of a sudden like spontaneously explodes. And I think the better later bombs were more efficient at that because only like, I don't know, very, very little percentage of the visible material in those two bombs actually went off. You mean little boy and, what was and, it, little and boy and... Fat man. That's right, fat man. Yeah. yeah. Um. Like, so out of 100% of the energy that could have been released through the fission of those materials, something like, I don't know, something really ridiculous, like 2% or 5% or something was actually underwent fission. Really? And the so rest, it could have been fucking huge. The rest was blown apart too fast for the reaction to take place. Really? And I think one of the big things of later bombs was there was more payload and more, more stuff in there, but that they got more efficient at designing the interaction and then the, like, 
the implosion such that more fission took place. Mm. Do you think that... Um, and there's hydrogen bombs too and all sorts of stuff which are not really yeah. technically across. Do you think that they... Fission to get fusion sort of thing. Do you think that in a way they dropped the bomb as an experiment? Like what, what I mean is like I'm Hir- Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, or do you think that is one, we got to do this? To a point, maybe. But what was the alternative? Many, many more months and lives, like American and allied lives of fighting um, and, you know, taking beaches by manpower and force. Mm. You know, bom- conventional bombing runs where there's many, many planes that get shot out of the sky um, and therefore, you know, your own lives that get lost. Or this incredible bomb that you've been spending a lot of money on and working on with the best minds in the world working together. Even Einstein, right? Yeah, I believe he was part of it. He, he regretted it later. Yeah, pussies. <laughs> I bet you Feynman didn't. <laughs> <laughs> he was a weird guy, apparently. You know, Oppenheimer, that's pussies. <laughs> it's these fucking physicists, like at, at, you know, at university. Yeah. Like these pacifists. Pacifists. They can't be that much of pacifists. I mean, do you think that they were just doing it for like the fascination of it, but they didn't really think, well, the government's probably going to use this to kill people? Maybe. You've got to be pretty naive, though. But I think a lot of them, like a bit, their propeller heads, they get caught up in the beauty of what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. About understanding the full ramifications. And then they get all upset when it turns out this, you know, awesome landmine was used to blow apart more children. <laughs> It's like, well, you know, you made this fantastic landmine which can sit out there for 80 years and maintain its potency. That's what it does. It blows up. Mm. You know, it's one purpose in life is to blow up. Yeah, but not necessarily to blow up children. Oh, probably not. That's unfortunate. But, um, but you know, when you go and make these things, they're just things that can be used in any conceivable way. Uh, and maybe they do get upset, but, you know, like, shit happens. Do you think they'd feel guilty? I think a lot of them did feel guilty, didn't they? Well, didn't one of the pilots shoot himself after oh, dropping the bomb? That. But there's so many old wives' tales and stuff. Mm. Um, uh, that's you would feel pretty fucking weird if you dropped the bomb that killed eighty thousand people, knowing that they weren't shooting back at you. I know that we, in a roundabout way, they sort of were, but there's a difference between shooting a guy with a gun who's shooting at you mm. and dropping a bomb that kills. Roughly 80,000 people in one, one... Yeah, what's the difference, though, to being on the artillery, like being an artillery gunner and loading in shells? How do you mean? Well, you're blowing up people 50 kilometres away. Right, but... you'll I'm... never, ever see. No one will again. Yeah, but you're dropping a bomb, like a massive bomb that kills 80,000 people in yeah. one go. And they're probably going to find... Oh, maybe they wouldn't find out, but you're going to have an understanding of what happened afterwards. Well, I think they knew it was going to happen afterwards because they had to have a very specific flight trajectory such that they wouldn't fly over their own explosion and get killed. Mm. So they had to know it was going to be pretty big. Yeah. They sort of did like a like a parabolic climb, I think, released the bomb to give it like a big arc so it would then go over and land on the city. And then they sort of turned back at the same time mm. in order to get as far away as possible in the shortest time pot that they had mm. to not be blown up. Yeah, that would have been a vibe. <laughs> anyway, um, let's end the podcast here. Um, but once again, thanks for coming on. It's always always something new to learn with you, man. Yeah, always. well, I think, you know, I guarantee 80% of the facts that I just said, the trick is to find out which ones those are. <laughs> 
and that that's a homework for any listeners. Yeah, that's that's left for the for the reader or for the listener to do in their own time. Yeah. Uh, thanks for coming on, man. No worries. Have something to say. Have something to say. Have something to say. Have something to say. Ah.